Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hartley. This podcast exists to equip and inspire your heart-centered leadership. Every week, we bring interviews with some of the greatest heart sets and mindsets on the planet. I hope the heart print of our time spent together is that it creates new possibilities for you and all those you come into contact with. If you'd like to explore what we could make possible for you, then head to abty.co.uk forward slash connect and book in a free 30 minute call to begin our journey together. I just want to express a huge amount of gratitude to our sponsors, Map Media Online, an independent agency who specialize in content marketing, helping businesses get their message seen by the right audience. Matt has produced all the digital media assets for this podcast since episode 106 back in December 2020. To have Matt in your corner, head to mattmedia.online. I'd also like to thank Exhale Coffee. I have been a big fan of Exhale Coffee since meeting Alex and the team back in 2022. Exhale is the first coffee to be sourced, roasted and lab tested specifically to maximise its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory potency. An independent lab test has shown that one cup of XL coffee has the same antioxidant power as 1.8 kilos of blueberries or 55 oranges. I'm a huge fan and Mrs. H loves the decaf, especially because she knows that Exhale use the mountain water decaffeination process, which uses only pure glacial water from the highest mountain in Mexico and no nasty chemicals. Simply head to exhalecoffee.com forward slash A-B-T-Y for your special offer. And lastly, before I introduce this week's guest, please do subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. It would really help us leave a greater heart print on this world. On episode 244, I am joined by Nicole Vignola. Nicole is a neuroscientist, a corporate consultant, author and speaker. She's committed to making neuroscience tangible for the masses. Her first book, Rewire, The Neuroscience of a Good Life, is due for release early 2024. I hope you enjoy this conversation. You get some early insights into that book that is due out next year. Make sure you go pre-order your copy. And here we go. Here's episode 244 with Nicole Vignola. Nicole, welcome to the Always Better Yesterday podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Very well. Um, Congratulations on finishing your book. I Thank can you. only imagine what that felt like to have the, I've seen a picture of you, you've got a copy of it, like, what, <laughs> were, what were the emotions when you had that physical copy? Well, I must say, we're still going through a major editorial, like, editorial process, so that was a dummy to check out that, you know, we like the cover and we like the, the finishes, so um, still, still a little bit in it, if I'm honest, but yeah weird i mean it's it's a big topic that i talk about in my book actually it's like emotional come downs right. because you know you get it from like post-olympic depression yeah. and you know the the major highs of like writing a book and mm. um i had this moment earlier in the summer where i went into penguin and i like i walked in through the doors and i was like hi i'm here to see my editor and i was like oh my god like real movie scene moment right yeah. um and I came home the week after and I felt really like down, really kind of like depressed, irritable, agitated. Um, and that's when it occurred to me, it's like, we need to talk about these things because sometimes we don't really realize the neurochemicals that are involved yeah. in such a high. And then, you know, obviously, you know, what goes up has come down and I really crashed. So yeah. and I think I want people to understand that because sometimes, you know, you, you, you have these thoughts and feelings, but they're not necessarily like a true representation of, 
you and your state they just kind of like you know a, a rebalancing if you will so yeah yeah it's, it's really interesting isn't it because um I'd love to dive into some of the neurochemistry because uh, I ran an event last year to celebrate our five-year anniversary of being a company, had some speakers. Yeah. And the, the days after that event, I was like, never again. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just the come yeah. down and whether it was a dopamine come down or what, but it was, you know, and, and, and I guess I, I talk a, a lot here around the kind of the Eastern philosophy of not being too attached to things, your attachment being the, the basis of suffering and, and and it, it no matter how you try not to get attached to any of these or fixate on outcomes or fixate on results like there's always that look that that crash and that come down i guess you know what in your understanding is is the going on inside us then when that happens yeah actually i did a post on this and it kind of went viral so basically <laughs> dopamine is high in pursuit of your goals and right. when you reach your goals it tends to drop yeah. Now, dopamine spikes when there's an unexpected reward. So I just want people to understand that there's a difference there. Expected reward, the dopamine is high before, drops down when you receive the reward. And then unexpected reward, it, it spikes at the reward because that's how we... Um, how we learn we learn that something is good let's do that again or if you know if something's bad dopamine will drop substantially lower and you go okay i shouldn't have done that don't do that again okay that's <laughs> the basis of learning as humans but so through expected reward you know putting an event or doing something a goal um dopamine is really high in pursuit of getting to that reward so what tends to happen then is that drop doesn't necessarily mean you have to feel low um you know i did a post and people were kind of confused because they were like oh well the, like is it inevitable but I think, you know, what we need to understand is that there are other neurochemicals at play. Mm. And there's no like one neurochemical does this and does that. There's a, we've come to understand as neuroscientists that there's a lot of interplay between sort of cocktails of neurochemicals. But um, I think it's, uh, there's a, I can't remember the author. God, I'll have to find it and so you can, you can quote him. But he talks about how there's the here and now neurochemicals. So those are more like serotonin, oxytocin, the kind mm. of ones that are responsible for you feeling happy in that moment. So yeah. when you reach your goals, it's about being grateful in that moment, in that space of actually I've just achieved this, not like, okay, what's next? Because that's yeah. the natural course order of things, right? You're like, okay, what now? I don't feel that good. That was rubbish. Like maybe I should do something else. Or, but it's more like honing in on that space in that moment. Like, aha, I've just experienced this. It feels great. I'm a bit sad now that it's over. <laughs> but just really finding, carving out that moment of like, you know, taking a breather and living in the present, really. Mm, I, um, I've been a nerd of psychology since I was a teenager. So I think I watched one too many crime documentaries. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I love the field of psychology and I went into more of the criminal side of things. I, I had a, a career within the UK police service mm. for, for a short while. But what what's got you hooked? What got you fascinated with this uh, neuroscience field? Well, yeah, a lot of things. I mean, I remember for as long as I can remember, I was fascinated with the brain. Um, that's probably because my father had schizophrenia mm -hmm. um, and my stepfather was an alcoholic. So weirdly, I felt this kind of like urge to understand rather than to like resent or be upset. Obviously, there were moments of my life where I have been but um so it was kind of like it was a deep fascination for like why we behave in the particular ways that we do and my neighbor was a doctor I actually wanted to be a doctor I um I applied to medical school three times so that was 11 uh, applications 11 rejections <laughs> 
<laughs> for anyone who's listening and is like, God oh, no, damn, I've been rejected so many times in my life. I've been rejected from medical. I actually got rejected from medical school 11 times. And then the subsequent year, I got rejected again and I hadn't even applied. And they emailed me saying, I'm oh, so sorry. Just in case you thought you were going to apply, is it no anyway? <laughs> I know. They were like, we're so sorry. Your application got pulled into this year's sorry. one and we just rejected you again. And I was like, oh, oh no. my God. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I get it. You don't want me to be a doctor. Yeah. But I applied to neuroscience as well. And yeah, like loved it completely. Just really, really enjoyed it. So, um, well, a lie, actually, I didn't in the beginning. I was kind of like, this is really hard <laughs> because you're studying things on a nanometer scale and you can't like extrapolate them into real life. Um, and that's when I went on to do my master's where I kind of merged psychology and organizations, especially mm. and individuals, right? Like how we operate on a, on a day-to-day level how we can attach this neuroscience that we learn in the labs and learn, you know, in, in mm. studies. So yeah, it was, uh, it's been a roller coaster of emotions. I actually had like a bit of a meltdown when graduating a few years ago, I can't remember when it was, it was like 2021, 20, I think, um, where I kind of felt like I wasted all my money and time on a neuroscience degree that I was never going to use. <laughs> and I had like this like existential crisis because I was really like 30 at the time. So yeah. <laughs> Hey friends, before we dive back into the interview, I just wanted to take a quick moment and ask for your help. Did you know that only 7% of you, 7% are currently subscribed to the YouTube channel? If you are enjoying the content so far and haven't hit the subscribe button yet, now is the perfect time to do it. By subscribing, you'll stay up to date with all our latest videos and you'll become part of our fantastic community. Plus, it's entirely free and it takes just a second just click that red subscribe button below this video not only will you never miss out on our future content but you'll also be showing your support for this channel and helping us grow it's your way of saying hey i love what you're doing and i want to see more don't forget to ring that notification bell so you'll be the first to know when we upload a new video so if you're one of the 93 percent who hasn't subscribed yet join the seven percent who already have and let's make this community even more awesome together. Thank you for being here. Let's get back to that interview. Yeah, a third life crisis. But um, yeah. it's, uh, you, so the title of your book is called Rewire. And I know that's like a, a tip of the hat to like this idea of rewiring and um, neuroplasticity. Yeah. But I, I, I wonder whether there's a, as a, as a reason why we need to re wire i wonder whether there are certain Mm. things particularly within culture whether there's particularly things within our system maybe our upbringing maybe in our organizations that are just failing us that's exactly why it's rewire because so the book has this premise that you know we've been given these narratives by our peers our parents the people before us the people around us our cultures like where we grew up but they shape everything that we believe as a child and as a young adult. And then we go into the real world and we've like now been programmed by somebody else. But then we go off on this trajectory that follows on from that, but that may not necessarily be who you want to be. You know, so parents to tell their kids, you're the sporty one, you're creative, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. I had a teacher who um, kind of giggled at me when I said I wanted to be a doctor. I'll probably write a, a letter. Um, <laughs> Like I made it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the reason I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, some people aren't lucky enough to have that. You know, kind of like I'll show you. They'll they might go down that route. And I I know I've worked with some people that kind of like I I remember having this client who was um 
her mother told her she wasn't a good student so she was always really afraid of even when she started coaching with me she was kind of terrified that there was going to be like kind of exam where i was going to test her and i was like no 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 like there's none of that um and it's funny because she she just never she she was happy with her life don't get me wrong she was a housewife and she was really happy with it but she was she'd always wished she'd done something with her career but she was always terrified of studying and and just putting herself out there because of her mother berating her her whole life yeah, yeah, it just seems to be like there's this interplay, this in, you know, this this I think therefore I am type philosophy, which is like, yeah, I believe something about myself, therefore it self perpetuates, almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. Like I am yeah. that, and and I think yeah, we, I think we we seem to. I think James Clear in his book Atomic Habits talked about how we show up in line with who we believe ourselves to be in terms mm-hmm. of our, our identity. And I guess yeah. what you're saying is that can either work for us or against us, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, there's a huge section of that in my book. I sort of speak about it in various ways. But yeah, one of the ways is that, you know, your your beliefs do trickle down into your every being, right? So the way you then conduct yourself in the world and the way that you then think, your emotions, your behaviors, they all, you know, the cognitive triangle kind of explains that what you think directs your behaviors and your behaviors direct your emotions and your emotions you know they all kind of like direct each other which i find really crazy because um then there's like i add another layer to that and okay so i've I've given the coffee shop example where you walk into a coffee shop you're self-conscious you walk in you your body language is closed you're kind of like shy you don't really want to like ask for this coffee (laughs) so the barrister kind of um barista i'm italian but um he picks up on the body language or they they pick up on the body language so then you think that actually they sort of validating how you feel because now they're acting weird but they're actually just trying to give you space so there's this like interaction where you like then start believing what you're seeing mm. because you interpret it with your cognitive bias of how it should be so this person's not looking at you because you're ugly well actually they're not looking yeah, at yeah, you because yeah. they want to try and be like courteous of your your energy um for lack of a better term and it's just yeah it's this whole thing where we then go through life trying to validate the beliefs that we have so you'll go through life trying to prove that what you believe is right so the barrister looked at me funny i am weird um this person doesn't want to talk to me i am you know this and it's yeah it's really interesting yeah i think some you know some of the i think most well-known practices around mindset have been you know start to learn to observe your thoughts you are not your mind you have a mind start to learn to observe your the title of your book is about uh rewire your neuro toolkit for everyday life what are some of the tools then that we can in that situation you know what what are the things that maybe someone could learn to observe in themselves say to you know talk to themselves i think you know replace the thinking with a maybe something they speak to themselves. What are some of the suggestions you might have for someone to, um, to rewire in that situation? Yeah. So I give a, I give a couple of things. Um, in that particular example, I think, you know, I I've given a couple of, of tools, but one of the things I like to always say to people is like fact or fiction, you know? So what you, what you believe is it fact, is it fiction? If Mm. it's fact, can you change it? Because most of the time you can, if it's fiction, then it's just a story that you're telling yourself that may not necessarily be true. 
you know and I've even just observing these narratives so even just being able to name them so acknowledging okay I have this belief that this is who I am even just doing that activates areas of the brain that are more logical so the frontal cortex because now you're attaching kind of thought and reason to these beliefs so you start to analyze them with a more logical mind state you know that's more of like an immediate tool in the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, your body language, if you stand up tall, you're going to be more confident. You're going to yeah. feel like, okay, actually I feel better rather than kind of like being closed in. So yeah. another tool is literally just kind of like opening yourself up. Um, and then there's obviously like more tools that work around that, you know, things like journaling again, you know, there's so much research around it because one of the things that happens, and this is one of the things I really want to convey, is that when we have these thoughts in our minds, there's no coherent beginning and end, right? They're just kind of like words that, that float around in our minds. And we've seen it in um, PET scans that they, um, they essentially take up more space in the brain. So an area called the default mode network, which is an area of networks in the brain. But when we have to generate words or when we have to speak words or when we have to think about words through writing them, we're acting, we're uh, recruiting very small parts of our brain, different areas. So like if you're speaking it would be Broca's area in, you know, in, in, in the, in the left temporal lobe, if it was, you know, generating thoughts or, or words for writing, it'd be more like the frontal cortex. If you're reading words, it's more the, excuse me, the visual cortex. So now you're activating different parts that switch off that default mode network that ruminates on that kind of like automaticity of no beginning and no end. And you know, it's a classic thing of, have you ever tried to write down your feelings and thoughts? And as soon as you try to write it down, you're like, oh, actually, I don't know how to get this out because it's a different network mm -hmm. that's operating in your brain. And when you can start to do that, you start attaching more reason to it. So that's why journaling really works. We start to kind of observe them from a more logical standpoint and realize that actually what we're saying and doing is may not necessarily be true. Mm. Yeah, I think what I've understood that is about trying to do activities that bridge left brain, right brain. Yeah, so left brain, right, what do, what do, what do you mean by that? So in terms of um, storytelling helps me connect both the logic and the feeling trying to i think what i've understood in the past is that my ability to find words is a different part of my brain to where i'm feeling it somewhat yes mm -hmm. but what i don't want people to confuse is that we've we've debunked the left brain right brain myth in the sense that left brain is more logic and right brain is more creative so mm -hmm. you know people sort of used to believe that they were more right brain because they were more creative and they use more of that side so that's not necessarily true so like the left side of the brain helps to communicate words, but then the right side of the brain helps to attach comprehension and understanding mm. to it, like context. Mm. Um, so they both work in unison to essentially generate a conversation. But yeah, there is there are differences for sure. Um, but you know, in some people it can be flipped as well, I believe. So if you're left-handed, um, yeah. there are there are some instances where people have actually the right side of the brain that is more for words and the, the mm. left side that's more that's for comprehension. My son's so, yeah. Mm, interesting. Just put him in a scan. And, yeah. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how you begin to. Yeah. Yeah. Take my I just want to check something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nicole says. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things you said a minute ago was uh, about the prefrontal cortex. And I know that that's the, the source of the brain, which helps us almost like our human computer logic rational type. Yeah. Um, 
And sometimes the production of cortisol inhibits our access to that. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is it the, you know, the stress chemical? You know, there are many things, maybe that coffee situation, maybe within parenting, maybe within a leadership hierarchy, high pressure yeah. sports situation. There are many, many environments we're going to be in that are going to arouse our states. Maybe, Absolutely. you know, the production of cortisol is going to be flowing. Yeah. Means that we are less able to tap into how do we regain access so that we may be choosing yeah. our response rather than our ch chimp ruling the uh yeah, that again, so that was the other layer I wanted to add on is that, you know, when we are more emotional, if you will, for lack of a better term, we're activating more limbic states of our brain. So more kind of like, I, I, I use the word primitive, but I don't want people to think that they're two different systems that don't work together again. So, you know, the, there's a big interplay between all brain networks in the, in, in the, in the brain, but it's more primitive in the sense that it's more logical, uh, sorry, less logical, more emotional, ready to run, not listen. So I always say that, you know, if you were in a stressful state and there was a lion, you wouldn't, you wouldn't reason with yourself. You just run your, your brain's not designed to listen to reason. So, you know, if we extrapolate that into like every other scenario. So again, you know, stress of the brain is stress. It doesn't differentiate between, okay, lion, divorce, it's stress, right? It's cortisol, it's a neurochemical. So, um, you know, being able to regulate our central nervous system back down into a state that activates more logical brain states. So, you know, Dr. Huberman talks about the physiological side all the time. And that's one of the tools that I give is being able to just take that moment to kind of like reactivate logical centers, right? So double inhale and a long exhale, quickest way to get your central nervous system back down into a parasympathetic state. Mm. Once you've done that, then taking some space, you know, like going for a walk or again, writing it down, just giving you that opportunity to really think about this from a more logical standpoint, rather than just automatic reaction of what comes out. Because if you've been practicing reaction over and over again in your life, it's going to take a different route to essentially rewire that into something that's more responsive rather than yeah. reactive. Uh, I think, yeah, I love that. And I think one of the things that, um, is the downside of some of our world that we're in is that it, it gets very individualized. It's almost like mm. what's going on in my brain? What is my, you know, self-development type stuff? Yeah. Like? And actually I love the words that Johan Hari used in his book, Lost Connections. He said, sometimes it's not about what's going on inside our head, but sometimes it's what is our head inside. And mm. it's that kind of ode to, the environment that we place ourselves in is sometimes not conducive to the human heart, mind, body. You know, yeah. so, so like when you said about going for a walk, sometimes it's about expanding the horizon. Maybe I'm looking at my, maybe I'm subjecting my mind and my body to sitting still for too long, stressful environments. Uh, yeah. To, yeah. Like, you know, that's, yeah. And that's one of the things that I really want people to understand. You know, we're so influenced by external stimuluses all the time. Like you're stressed, you go on your phone. So now you're giving subliminally hinted by someone else's perspective on social media. But really, like, how often do you check in with yourself? How are you doing? Hey, Nick, let's go for a walk and just be alone. No, no distractions, just going into your mind. And the thing is, people are afraid of that. They don't want to sit with their own thoughts, right? People don't want to meditate. They don't want to go for a walk because they have to then think about 
the thoughts that are perpetuating in their heads. And there might be rumination thought, like ruminative thoughts, negative thoughts. But the thing is, you have to kind of like go through it to get onto the other side. You have to kind of like sit with them, sift them, deal with them, and then, you know, come out a different person. And I really find that walking is one of the best ways to do that because um, when we walk, our eyes are moving side to side. So that lateral eye movement activates areas of the frontal cortex, um, which then deactivate the, the amygdala. So you can think about your feelings and emotions without that sort of fear perception attached. So the emotional friction or the emotional load that's attached to these thoughts gets diminished. Mm. So, you know, you come back from walking and you're like, wow, I don't regret that. Who ever regrets going for a walk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, I love that, you know, the, the relation to the eyes and the threat perception, because isn't there some research that says about whether we are um, something are, are our focus whether it's specific or whether it's peripheral like that can indicate where we are within our stress response yeah so um you know i, I know that huberman talks about this a lot but basically like when your eyes converge they release norepinephrine in response to that uh, papillary convergence because um you know if you wanted to pick something up with precision you wouldn't be looking somewhere else or you wouldn't be expanding your periphery to try to pick it up you'd need that precision so you, you'd look at it um uh, so there's there's a big area of research around papillary convergence and then divergence as well, where you know the pupils constrict and dilate in response to light. That's still very new research. I haven't gone down a more updated um, look on that. It was something that I was trying to talk about in my book, but I feel like I need to speak to someone who is maybe like a an ophthalmologist um, who knows a bit more because I don't want to make bold claims that I yeah can't, you know uh, and and I wasn't just about to make a bold claim, but more just a hypothesis which is just that interesting no, but... idea of actually if you are someone that is used to scanning for threats and perception maybe because your safety has required it then working yeah. in an open plan office you know mm. whether you're in a, a kids kids in classrooms that kind of maybe that adhd kind of symptom response where you're always yeah. I, I don't know like yeah, no, and actually you're right. And there was a piece of research that I remember reading that was saying that, you know, when we have our periphery in front of us and we can scan that there's no immediate threat, um, we, t we tend to lower our stress response. And um, I believe that people's stress is higher in um, cities as well, rather than in nature. Yeah. And predominantly, if you're sitting, actually, I remember reading this piece of research and, and I can't remember the, the, the author at the top of my head, but if you're sort of looking out onto the distance, but your back is covered, that tends to have a big interplay in how you how, how your stress levels play in but the it environment. It if your back's safe. Yeah, if your back is safe, but you yeah. can see immediate, like no immediate threat in front of you there's something very primal about that that tells your brain you know you're you're, you're okay uh, that's yeah. interesting isn't it because I, I often think about primitive times not all the time but you know when we we, we sat around <laughs> a campfire right you know the, the the fire would have been the tv and then that phrase i've got your back yeah the power of community it's mm. we sit in a circle so that each of us has each other's back yeah i like that i like that a lot mm. Mm. i um uh, not to be too controversial, nor am I a neuroscientist, but I, I wonder the relationship between uh, the increase in what it would seem of neurodiversity yeah, and actually whether a lot of that is hidden in neuroplasticity. I wonder whether our culture is 
hiding behind a label of neurodiversity when actually the environments that we've subjected our brains to has actually created some neuroplastic effects? Um, I know um, the brain that changes itself, Norman Deutsch, he talks a little bit about this and he basically says that uh, children who are exposed to TV at a very young age are more likely to develop symptoms of ADHD. Um, there's also a lot of research to show that uh, neuroplasticity can help with ADHD. So, you know, kind of like uh, changing our, our state of focus. Um, you know, they, they, there was a wonderful research where they did open monitoring or open gaze meditation. And they did 17 minutes of this with individuals with ADHD, clinically diagnosed ADHD. And in that 17 minutes, one sitting of meditation, they'd already changed their plasticity to help them with symptoms, which is pretty wild. So, you know, I, I, I do believe that there's a, you know, we, we can rehabilitate people who have had strokes to use their arms and limbs again, yeah, you know, we, yeah. you know, the brain is going to try and maximize it's at best possible. So, you know, if you lose a, a, um, a sensory input, so like vision, you, you know, you become more discriminative through tactile discrimination. So that's why a blind person can read Braille. And that's why when I put my finger over Braille, I'm like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> so yes. it's that like the brain is going to maximize that area of the visual cortex that is no longer being used. Mm. Um, so, you know, cortical math, we, we call it sort of like cortical real estate, cortical maps. They're going to try and, 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 and be as maximized as possible. So, you know, I do believe that we can pretty much rewire, you know, a lot of things in our brains anyway. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting notion. You know, I can't, I can't say, you know, it's a very controversial topic, but I do agree that I think also what's happening is we're, 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 we're sort of asking, let's, let's use children as an example. We're asking children to fit in a system that's not necessarily made for how we should be operating. You know, we're, we're asking squares to fit into a circle. Yes. You know, and then, and then when we're condemning them and putting a label on them, ah, you've got ADHD because you can't concentrate. Yes. Some kids, <laughs> some kids, work, some kids work out how to get ahead in that system, and some kids are just like, this is not. And and I and without putting too much label on, that's my son and my daughter. My son has yeah. learned how to master the system. Yeah, <laughs> Loves good for him. Grades, whereas my daughter would she she doesn't like to do what she doesn't want to do she's very creative yeah. she's very artistic mm. she's very expressive she, you know and, it, and it's yeah, yeah so she, her her feedback from a teacher was well you're gonna have to learn how to <laughs> just do what's needed yeah but you know old. to some extent you can try you know you know you in life there's a lesson yeah. there we've got to do yeah. the things you don't want to do but that's one of the you know i think for people who have adhd it's it's actually just amplifying what I think we all really believe is that we only want to do the things we care about. And that's like classic etiology of an ADHD person. They will hyper focus on the things that they really care about. Yeah. And you'll, you know, I've, I've had clients that have to like, you know, put a timer on because they'll forget to eat, they'll forget to drink because they get so deeply engrossed in their work. But then you ask them to do anything else, you know, laundry, yeah. mundane events that, they, you know, have to be done for everyday yeah. living. So it's not and a deficit. It's just they don't no. give a shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. And that's exactly it. And I think um, I I believe that these neurodiversities, um, you know, are, are, are more like superpowers in a way, because, you know, you look at people with AD, ASD, some spectrum disorder they generally have a very high functioning side of things 
depending on where they are on the spectrum, right? So there are deficits in other areas of life, like maybe the ones where society's asking them to, you know, be in, be, and I put normal in, in brackets, you know, yes. like, yep. do your washing, do this, do that, show up to work, grief people. <laughs> And I, and, I, and I think you're right. I think you just used the word normal as I think Gabor Mate wrote a book on the myth of normal. Like, yeah, that's half the issue, isn't it? Because I, like... I, I remember, um, I think it was in my Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, or something like that, but basically said, whatever we go in terms of the average human, there mm. is no one that is literally no. on the average. It's no, it's a, it's a distribution curve. And that's exactly it. Is I I uh, I just don't think that anyone's normal. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, we all have our own little quirks, and when I think, you know, individuals with neurodivergencies yes. have um have like superpowers in a way. You know, like I like I said now with my client that's got ADHD. She she just she's a really successful business owner who goes so deep that she has to like you know put a timer on her phone because she forgets to eat i mean that's like some real dedication yeah, <laughs> I mean, i'm yeah. like food all the way <laughs> but it's like yeah right but it's like purely <laughs> present isn't it it's purely present engaging and and you know for me it's like that normal is a narrative you you used the yeah. word earlier narrative the opposite is for me it's about coming to the world from the inside out as an expression of who we truly are and I think, you know, if there are if there are ways with which we can get to understand how our brain works, how our heart is wired, how the things that are important to us, the things that we care about, the stories we tell ourselves, then that enables us and gives us the freedom and permission to bring whatever this is to its fullest. Yeah. And I think, you know, my my deepest underlying sort of belief is that I think we need to work with ourselves without like if as long as you're not arguing with yourself then i think you can be happy and do anything you want in life as long as you're aligned with who you are mm. how you operate and what you want to be you know mm. and there's a big chapter in my book about like you know uh, keeping promises to ourselves because when you like quite literally nurture that relationship with yourself then it doesn't matter if you've got adhd and you operate in this way it doesn't matter if you're like this and you operate in that way but as long as you are aligned with yourself because you're not if you're not aligned with yourself what are you aligned with <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 absolutely well and this is why people get lost in culture this is why our children yeah. get educated by tiktok <laughs> this yeah. is because they haven't got that anchor of you know yeah without being too political i think i think school should be places and spaces where kids can find out about who they truly are not yeah lose themselves and yeah but, in a system but, that yeah yeah, I, I think one of the important things to kind of bring forth center is is because we've talked about neurodiversity and I know that you talk about uh, the brain being the hardware and the mind being the software. And I, and I know mm -hmm. that there'll be people out there that have damage to the hardware which presents in situations. So I think it's just important to put that in front and center. Talk to us yeah. about hardware and software. Yeah, so, you know, I, I and just to go back on that, I damage, yes, but it depends what we're talking about, because sure. I also believe that we dif have different sets of hardware mm, that okay, cool. maybe is like you've got a Windows and I've got a Mac. Um, <laughs> neither neither's better than the other. <laughs> oh, there it's is. Different. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm like, which one? Tell me yeah. it's Mac. <laughs> well, I'm, all, I'm on a Mac, so yeah, guess it's yours. Okay, okay, fine. Okay, well, we can um, Samsung and um, Apple maybe. <laughs> but... <laughs> 
anyway basically i think people just have different kinds of hardware but yeah so the premise is that you know we need to take care of our hardware as much as our software so people you know bang on about mental health and software this and software this sorry mental health this and um behaviors habits but if we haven't got the basics in place, you know, you're not sleeping right, you haven't got your stress yeah. levels under control, you're not hydrating correctly. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw, I just drank a whole thing of electrolytes. That's what the brown water was, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> um, you know, our, our brain communicates in the space of water through, you know, sodium potassium. So drinking effectively and, and, and consistently throughout the day can actually help in our processing speed, uh, you know, how we interpret our choices and decisions. So. And all these things need to be in place because it's very well saying, okay, actually, I, I have depression and I want to change that, but if you're not sleeping enough, you know, which is, you know, a problem in the stuff. And I do appreciate that people have problems with sleep when they have depression and, and other things, but it's going to be very hard to be at a place where you can feel like you can make a change. And it's the same respect as like, you know, when you, when you, when you're in a dark place and you, you know, that the answer is exercise, you know, that, you know, all the, the answers but it's hard to get yourself out of that place because the hardware component is maybe not you know operating effectively so you know making sure that we're getting the right things like sleep meditation taking regular i mean honestly i think i think 90 percent of our problems will be solved if we just spend less time on our phones right. it's something that i'm really trying to do at the moment i'm reading a lot more i read a book a week now oh, nice. I, who would have thought i would read a book a week but there's you know, what a book you takes... is it education? Is it you're always on, always everything, learning, or is it everything, anything? I just read uh, Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. I read that in a day. Oh, it was right. so good. You know, I'm Matthew reading. Matthew was but... on the show a couple of years ago. Talking yeah. About it. Incredible. Okay. Yeah, wow. I need I need to listen to the podcast. I love him. Love yeah. him. Uh, you know, and I'm reading Barbarian Days at the moment as well. Um, can't remember the author, but he, it's it's a it's a really good one. So yeah, I, I toggle between. You know, I've, I've read. Uh, you know, Lost. Um, Lost connections. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, the, re the reason I ask is that every time I read, my wife's like, "Can you just stop learning for a second? Like, because I, <laughs> I, I can't do the Harry Potters and the fiction. My brain doesn't allow me to revel in that. I'm like, oh, I enjoy learning about this stuff. Yeah, I can. I can do fiction. Just depends on what it is. You know, I'm reading my agent's book at the moment, and that's quite a quirky, fun read. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know, a book takes about eight to ten hours to read, I believe, or you know, maximum twelve if you're very slow, depending on the size of the book. That I can find 12 hours in a week to read, you know, and you don't have to read a book a week like me, but um, it's, it's interesting, know, isn't six... it? Because if we all went to our social media stats on our phone, uh, you can yeah. find those hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why I was like, I need to be reading at night and I really be reading in the morning. So that's what I've been doing. And that's like half an hour to an hour of reading a day, like in, in eight days, I can get through a book. I don't know if so, you um you know the research and I certainly don't know it well enough to quote it but isn't there something about when we read before bed whether it's our eye movement or what but it actually starts to change our brain frequencies our brain waves to a more uh a supple state ready for sleep is that yeah am I making that up well I'm not entirely sure but and I and I have had this question before but I, I think what it does, goes back to is the same lateral eye movement that I was talking about when walking it switches off the amygdala it kind of like dampens that feeling of like anxiety thoughts worry that we normally get when we get into bed from the day's um sort of events so yeah it's um it also helps you wind down into more of like a theta state yeah. you can because this is the thing so you know we go we've got gamma, beta, alpha, theta, delta. Delta is your deepest wave sleep. 
when we're operating on our phones, we're in beta. If you're arguing with someone on Instagram, you're a gamma. So now you're here. You've got to go through gamma, <laughs> beta, alpha, theta to get into delta, right? So it's like, how can you expect to scroll on your phone and then fall asleep straight away and get a good night's rest when you're that activated? So that's why something like reading can help you just really unwind without that stimulus, you know, that, that kind of beta frequency that puts you in a state of alertness. Um, but back to the hardware software, yeah, I think it's really important to just take care of both from a brain health perspective and do you know what you can. Like there are days, you know, and I'm not saying you need to like, you know, do things you don't want to all the time, but you know, I know that I definitely operate at my best when I do exercise every day, even if it's not a hard workout, you know, I'm not saying like do a hit class every morning at five, you know, go for a walk or go for a run or exercise. When I exercise regularly and I do my meditation straight after, I have like a whole routine, I'm a way better person. But I also know that when I'm not in that place, it's really hard for me to get them. Like, oh, I know I need to do it. I just can't bring myself to do it. And that's when I'm like, Nike just hit the nail on the head, but they were like, just do it. Yeah, 100%. So like, no, I've some fuss about it. Just do it. And, and that's you better. Know, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, yeah, no, no. There, there are bits like that where, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm about to publicly declare it for the first time. I'm doing a half marathon in a couple of weeks' time. Yay! My identity <laughs> is not a runner, right? I, I, I had a period, uh, my nan passed away, sadly, a I'm couple sorry of months to ago. Hear. Thank you. And I was just in a bit of a lull. I was like, so I yeah. came up on my story. I was like, oh, stop it. I'm just going to sign up. So I stupidly, <laughs> in that moment, that's normally how it happens. <laughs> I committed to something that, in, and now I'm just, so I look at my flipping running trainers. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to yeah. do this. And so there's, there's that mo or, or sometimes I'll do like ice baths. And, and it's always that moment when you're looking at it, when the chatter just becomes louder. Yeah. And it's learning how to go, not today gonna crack on gonna do it anyway yeah yeah exactly and that's and that's it right it's like keeping those promises to yourself like i said doing regularly hard things you know when we engage in things that challenge us we actually change our physiology so this is like circling back to that stress response of um you know being at work and being triggered or whatever when we do regular hard things, we actually change our central nervous system response to stress because you're voluntarily putting yourself in a stressful situation. So now you're saying, okay, well, actually it takes me this much more to activate a stress response because I regularly stress my body out and my body's now adapting, right? So now the threshold is higher. So it takes a lot more to stress yourself out. And that's why hard things are important. Yeah. And uh, I think I've seen you quoted as saying your brain is plastic, not elastic. Yeah. And I, you know, and I and I wonder whether we can take this conversation into a kind of corporate space now, because a lot of corporates over the last few years, five, five years or so, have gone down the mental health route. And but yeah. the, the the solution is not a breathwork class or a yoga session, <laughs> because I think that's a no to your brain is plastic, not elastic. What does it mean? Why why is it not elastic? And what are the consequences of believing so well i think a lot of people think that like if they take a day off so they say they have like a good week and then they take one day off they're just gonna like revert back to old habits and don't get me wrong it's very easy to do that but i have clients that have been working for like a year for example and then they'll have like one bad day and they're like freaking out because they think that you know they're just gonna like become that old person again i put that in like inverted commas because i don't believe that there's any like old version of us you know just an evolved version but so 
you know, it's, it's just as easy as we can create habits. Um, they can stay. So we've still laid out that cortical yeah. pathway for these new habits. So I think when we do that, people start seeing their progression in a different light because what tends to happen is like someone will do like progress a week two, and then they kind of like get panicked about this thing yeah. and then they revert and they forget about everything they've done. But if you say, actually, those two weeks are still there somewhere, yeah, it gives people that like feeling of like, oh, actually, I can do this instead of that daunting Oh my God, do I have to keep doing this forever? Yeah. Or it's I'm never, never going to change. It's never back to square zero, is it? Because you've stacked the bricks. Yeah, exactly. The foundation is still there. So, yeah, I don't know if that helps your question. but Yeah, it does. Yeah, I guess I'll be more specific in terms of now when it comes to um, the, the kind of business corporate setting. How do we make something such as neuroscience more accessible and understandable to... I guess, what are the leadership implications for, for some of the things you talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a few talks on this, um, you know, and I think one of the things that it's, um, you know, it's not really addressing your question, but it's continuity in organizations, right? Because I'll come in, I'll give the talk. Yeah. And then I always wonder, I'm like, how many of them still remember so you know it would be great to implement more of like a program around changing so that's why i also work as an organizational consultant so i'll, I'll go into companies i'll deliver the talks i'll deliver the workshops and then through continuity we make sure that these structures are being implemented and that's also why i work with like executives on a one-to-one -one because i want to change how they lead people you know um because if you know if you can be a good leader you your, your team will listen your team will be more inclined to uh, want to work you know performance goes up trust um autonomy all, all of these you know lovely things that <laughs> that happen when you know we are operating as a better human so it's definitely something that i think we need to bridge more because I appreciate that companies are trying to, you know, implement these things and talk more about well-being, but they'll have a well-being day. And then it's like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah, tick, tick that box. But it's it's the living embodiment, isn't it? And I think, you know, one of the things that I love about this podcast is that we just try and equip leaders. We try yeah. and equip them. So having this conversation hopefully sparks something within them to go, ah, Every human being that I am responsible for leading has mm. a mind, has a body, yeah. has a yeah. has a has a hardware and software, and and it's learning. I guess first and foremost is how am I maximizing my own, and mm. then how do I learn how to maximize or create the environment to get the yeah. best out of others. One of the things that I always like to teach my my clients is that you know you are the leader. Yeah. So, you know, it's easy for like clients and, and me and me, you know, I, I have a business that I, I run people and it's easy sometimes to be like, oh, you know, they should know this or, um, you know, X, Y, Z. And I always remember, come back to this, like, no, you should just coach them through it, you know, and it's the same, like I had a bit of an altercation on Friday night with some drink situation in a bar and the guy was really hyped, really angry. I was like, I just want to refund. I want to go. I don't really want to be here. And he took it really personally. And I was like, look, it's not coming out of your paycheck. I understand you're super stressed. Like I've just seen the, the happy hour. It, it doesn't look, it doesn't look fun yeah. for you, but I'm telling you, I'm not angry. It doesn't need to be a, a thing. Like, let's just take a breath. I just yeah. want my refund. It's going to come out of the company's like money anyway, <laughs> not yours. Um, it's fine. And he was like, I could just see, he was like, you know, ha, huh. 
because I think we need to guide people a lot of the times. And I try and do that in every situation. Um, You know, I had a similar thing with an Airbnb host situation and that kind of went pitong. But anyway, um, (laughs) the first time I tried, it was again, like just trying to help people to see a different perspective. Because when we're in that state of high cortisol, I'm telling you, very few people can think logically and very few people can actually take on this role of I'm going to help instead of amplify and make worse. Yes. It's a very, it's a skill being able to diffuse and redirect. So any leader that's listening to this and forgets that sometimes, like we all do, just remember that the people that are looking up to you, again, have their own hardware, they have their own software, they've got their own shit going on at home, they've got... They also slept six hours because their kid was up at night. You know, there's things going on. So it's our job as leaders to really just guide them through it and remind them that we can do things without blowing up. We can do things without getting super angry. There are tools involved. There is the help involved and there's the guidance that allows us to get to that place where we can operate better on a day-to-day basis. I don't know if that helps, but... Yeah, hundred percent is the that is the essence of leadership, isn't it? We can't control whatever comes our way, but we we can try and get the best out of ourselves in the situations that we face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things that I saw you post recently is about uh, unique brain styles, you know, and it, and it's understanding, particularly as teams. You know, I come from a culture where there was a preferred leadership style, and mine was mm-hmm. very different, and therefore, I the narrative I had internally was. I haven't got what it takes to be a leader here. Right. Whereas if I was working in a leadership environment that was like, wow, you're different to me. And I like that the, the, you bring this particular style and attribute to a team. Yeah. What is it about um, the, the unique brain styles that could be useful for, for a leader to understand? Yeah. I mean, so the, the brain styles was something that I did with Reverie, which is a great app. And I think everyone should be, you know, give it a go at least. Um, I think the only sort of, a flag to wave there is you know people who have schizophrenia might not um you know benefit from it so just definitely check with the physician but uh you know uh self-hypnosis and i'm sort of going off on a tangent now but mm-hmm. self-hypnosis helps with you know like visualizing stress visualizing like different outcomes um and that's one of the things that i, I like to talk to people about because sometimes we especially in the moment if you haven't practiced a different outcome, I had a chat with someone on the podcast and they were saying like people ask him of things and he goes, yes, but he doesn't want to do them because he's so like busy all the time. But his automatic is like, I don't want to let people down. 100%. So one of the things that we got to do is I like we practice what could be an alternative to do like a response to that, because in that moment, your automatic it's called mental heuristics. They're going to take they, they basically shortcut your brain is going to take shortcuts to try and maximize your efficiency. So you're going to say yes, even though you didn't mean it. (laughs) Okay. So practicing an alternate response, like, Hey, I really want to, but I can't right now, uh, means that you then are more likely to engage in that response when the situation arises because you're prepared. So help self-hypnosis helps with a lot with that. It helps you like embody that feeling of like being in a different place. So what I mean by that is like, especially let's use like people who have suffered with you know trauma for example it's you want to get over the trauma but your body doesn't quite know how to feel in this space 
you know and it's that classic feeling of like you come out of a toxic relationship for example but then no one really taught you what it was like to live in peace <laughs> your body's got to recalibrate because the body doesn't know the difference between right and wrong it just knows it's been repeated and what's familiar even if what's familiar is morally incorrect right so that's what self-hypnosis helps you with is like visualizing where you could be or where you want to be so back to your question about leaders is like yeah we, we all have different styles and i think you know if we can remember that again we all have little superpowers regardless of our neurodivergencies regardless of our little quirks i don't believe that there's any any normal right i think we can be normal in some respects on a spectrum but i don't yeah. think every part of us is normal on all spectrums which ironically i think I, i'm a i'm a oasis fan and um Noel Gallagher wrote a lyric that just says true perfection has to be imperfect which yeah. for me is that that actual normal is probably abnormal <laughs> yeah well exactly and I think if anything it's probably something you know we, we could go down another route and say that you know being normal is probably wrong in itself because that could like perpetuate feelings of perfectionism sure. is that normal you know so this yeah there's there's so many layers to this but well, I, I think that anyone that aspires to be normal actually dulls down the, the the fullest of their expression whatever unique expression that was meant to be it's interesting yeah. you said the word trauma because you know sometimes that yes response is that uh that whatever they needed to do as a young person or, or whatever to to preserve a relationship to feel safe to feel loved and i remember yeah. reading will smith's book and how he talked about how a lot of his humor came from the abuse of the father actually right. if his dad was laughing at him he wasn't getting smacked by his dad so it was that wow. kind of even a great skill and a strength that was born from that was actually rooted in a trauma response so mm. i guess that's where it's very powerful with your book in the first step is break the cycle learning to observe i guess there's that makes compassion possible right being able to yeah. see ourselves in a different light and i think wonderful things made possible by compassion yeah yeah and, and understanding why our brain operates the way it does you know that people yeah. berate themselves but they don't understand that actually it's a programming that's been you know curated by you know someone like will smith's dad for example sorry the cat <laughs> i'm just gonna take that down before he rips our computer down um he's a main coon it's my friend's cat so he's massive he's so sweet i'll show you in a minute um but yeah so it's you know it's about just understanding yeah. why we behave the way we do and people start to kind of see it from a different perspective and go oh okay actually from a hardware component i can see how i got to this point <laughs> and it takes that kind of like load off where people believe that there's something wrong with them or that the emphasis is on them you know i should be here because xyz but actually i'm here because of whatever and uh, you know it's very vague but <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well this is going to speak to the people that need to hear what it's going to say they're going to go and pre-order your book which is due out in in may 2024 yes, um, please. it's called it's called rewire your neuro toolkit for everyday life break the cycle alter your thoughts and create lasting change is there anything specifically you'd like to share about the book that i haven't asked no i think you know there was kind of going on a little trajectory of like, i've got a um i've got a, a chapter called creeping normality um and it's this notion that when things happen on a very sort of subtle basis, like seemingly innocuous, they never reach a threshold to flag them as something wrong. Mm. So, you know, micro traumas, like maybe the way that someone behaves around you. So you start to change your entire normality according to the new perceived normal. 
um, you know, we see that with, uh, you know, all kinds of things, you know, like yeah. the war that's going on at the moment in the beginning, you know, people talk about it. And then after a while, it just becomes this like normal thing that happens on in the background, you know, and I appreciate my privilege every time I am able to switch off the news and detach from it. So um, there are things in our lives that happen that sometimes shift that perspective into something that we necessarily didn't want to happen. And that's a classic example is like abusive relationships or toxic relationships where they're not kind of like emotionally abusive ones. They're not there enough for you to like really think that there's anything wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just something I wanted to flag because I think it's something we don't talk about enough where people yeah. kind of like they, there's not enough reason to leave or enough reason to make a change, mm -hmm. but enough to change your new your your center so yeah. you accept a new normal. Yeah. Uh, I I had a different context, and I think I know what you're saying because when I was on holiday with the family in in the summer, at dinner time, all of the children were set on devices. Not my right. children, but all of the children. Yeah. And you just think that's a creeping normal because it's like that's just what people are doing now. Yeah. And then you yeah. and then you get new parents that do it because you know I guess the cognitive dissonance is like oh well everyone's doing it. Yeah. And it's like that creeping normal, like 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. No, and it would have been weird, right? That's mm. yeah, I love that. And I might actually use that as an example because I need to try yeah. to pull out real life examples. Um, I was on the train the other day and it was about, so we were, we were delayed. So we got in at 2 a.m. into Bristol from London and we were supposed to get in at 1. Um, and this 13-year-old kid was like listening to his phone really loud as well. I was getting really frustrated because I was like, firstly, it's like, it's it, it's two o'clock in the morning. Why is your kid on his phone in the first place? <laughs> and secondly, why is it so loud that it's like annoying me? But you know, they've just been come back from the football. But I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking like how we just normalize these things now. Like that is not normal. And I know the science of it. So I'm like, hell no, that's not normal. I try not to look at my phone after 10 o'clock at all. Yeah. Because you know this, yeah, we can go down. We'll go down a whole different chapter on that. But <laughs> it's really bad for you, right? So you know, having seen kids on their phones at that time. But I also understand. Like my sister has a child, and I, I get it. I'm yeah. like, you just want to like have a bit of peace for a minute. So you like, it's easier. Well, put the, them on the, the phone. Yeah, I, I yeah, hundred percent. There's compassion. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. But I, but I think sometimes once we know better, we have to do better. Yeah. And and absolutely. I think, but you know that that normal you know maybe someone's up on their phone late at night maybe they're just having the weekly white this is not an attack on anyone that's got any of these habits like i've been there yeah but it's yeah. like <laughs> and then you wake up and you just expect this lethargic feeling just to be normal yeah and so it, you think caffeinate like, just the way it is yeah it's like yeah. caffeination it's like the the food that isn't real food anymore yeah and that's kind of where i'm going with this system of the world which it just appears normal because everybody's doing it and yeah. I interviewed a biohacker, UK's leading biohacker, Tim Tim Gray, and he yeah. just said, he said, unfortunately, these days, if the majority of people are doing it, it's probably not good for you. Yeah, and that, so that, that kind of like aligns with what we were saying about leaderships, about children not being normal, neurodivergencies. If anything, I encourage you to not be normal. Right. Because a new normal, like for lack of a better term, is fucked. Right. <laughs> you know? But it's hidden in plain sight, and that and that's the thing. Yeah. Sometimes, without being too awakened and, and morally superior, it is when you start to look at it and you go, "Well, now I know this. I've got to do better." The cognitive dissonance in me says, yeah. "Now I know this. I have to either change my behaviour or ridicule it." And, yeah. and that's why it feels dis uncomfortable for people, I imagine, who are yeah. courageous. 
because yeah. they will be ridiculed rather than other people adopt their behavior. Mm -hmm. I like that. And I like that we brought up the creeping normality because I, I felt this urge to say it, but I didn't quite know where I was going to go with it. And then yeah. you perfectly t tied into how, you know, we, we now accept these new things that shouldn't yeah. be accepted. And then it, it's funny because then, you know, you become a leader in a place where you feel weird for being different, but actually normal is what we should be aspiring to not be. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I think that creeping normal has gone, you know, 50, 60 years, the introduction of, you know, processed foods, the introduction yeah. of schools and you yeah. know, six hours. It's been a long time. This, and therefore it's, it's like cooking the frog, isn't it? It's all hidden in plain sight. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when someone comes along and goes, oh, well, this is bad for you. Someone goes, no, can't be bad for you. There's nothing wrong with that. Like everyone does it. I know I, I, I won't name who because I think it'd be embarrassing if I did but I know someone in my, in my family who was I can't remember but they were kind of like yeah but the cafeteria food is even worse yeah. something like that and I was like yeah but it doesn't mean that you should be eating junk just because the cafeteria food is worse you know it's like, you know it's, better, like saying, um, it's like saying vaping's healthy or it's healthier yeah. it's healthier than smoking it's like that's a that's a dichotomy. Yeah. That's not a <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a clever yeah. use of words. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's yeah, just trying to check what your normal is yeah. and what you want it to be against you know what people perceive normal to be. Because I don't think one of things have ever been normal. Probably not. But <laughs> I like this conversation. Well, let's continue to rewire and, and thank you for all the, the work that you're doing, putting out into the world. And, and I have a word here at Always Been Yesterday. It's called Heartprint, which the word symbolizes the ripple effect, the legacy that we have, the impact that we have on others, the possibilities that we create. I, I'd wonder if you take a moment to reflect on what you hope uh, your heartprint will be. I love that you said that because that's how I close off the chapter of my book. It's like now that you have the tools, I think greatness and the purpose of life is to pass these things on to other people through either, th you know, directly or through um, uh, observation. Again, that observational knowledge that we put onto people, showing them, leading them into a different way of thinking. Um, so I think that it's a big, big part of human humanity really is to help those around us to be better if we know that we can be better as well so i don't know if that answers your question what was the question <laughs> love that yeah just 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 the the hope for your the legacy that you leave behind and the impact that the book will have on people yeah i just i just want people to realize that it's not them you know like people are so quick to like blame themselves like oh, there's something wrong with me there's something wrong with my brain i'm not normal i can't shift these behaviors and i want people to be so aligned with themselves and it goes back to you know what i believe is that we need to be aligned with who we are and then you know once you can do that pass that on to other people you know not necessarily by kind of like um through uh, not through like kind of like talking down at them i'm trying i've lost yeah. my words but more like through showing you know yeah. being the example that i think everyone needs you know yeah it comes down to that advice isn't it it's not uh, monkey say monkey do it's monkey say, yeah monkey do. <laughs> yeah exactly being you know, a parent so... i'm held accountable to that every day yeah and that's so true because you know observational knowledge is a wonderful thing they pick up on all your quirks all your behaviors um you know they they learn how to get to school without you having to explain to them 
that's observational knowledge, but they also pick up on, you know, the things that you say to yourself, say to your wife, say to them through habits and, you know, body language. So it's a very, very interesting subject that I discuss in my book. But yeah. Love it. Love it. I'll, I'll put the link to your book, link to your Amazing. social, link to your website, all in the show notes. And be honored if you leave us a final thought from your good self. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I have a final thought. I just, I'm so happy to be here and I'm so grateful to be able to sort of spread this knowledge. Um, and I'm, yeah, just, I, I really appreciate your time, Ryan. So oh, thank you. I'm grateful for for you, your work, and I look forward to having that conversation in person very soon. Yes, absolutely. I hope to be one of your first. <laughs> take care. All right, Ryan, take care. Hey, my friends, thank you for making it to the end. I hope that our time spent together today has left you a little bit better than before you push play. I'd really appreciate if you just took a moment to leave a review to allow me to meet more people where they are and hopefully leave them a little bit better too. If you're curious to know how I, through Always Better Than Yesterday, can serve you, your team, your organisation, then head to alwaysbetterthanyesterday.com to connect. And while you're there, let me know one or two things that you're going to do as a result of listening to this conversation. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts, your reflections, and the things that this spark in your own heart and mind. If you want more insights from my heart and mind, I do send out short episodes on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And again, I hope that they serve you well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Ryan Hartley, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, a podcast for heart-centered leaders just like you. Keep leading, my friends. Always love.